The temple in Jerusalem was an important place in Israel. In fact, it was the most important place. As we've looked at Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. We've seen him making his way to the temple there. Last week, we heard him teaching in the temple courts. He confronted the religious leaders there. And he pointed out a poor widow to his disciples who came and put all that she had into the temple treasury. And our passage this evening starts with the temple. We're going to look at the whole of Mark chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1018. And in the large print Bibles, 1580. And I'm going to begin by reading just the first four verses. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? The disciples are impressed by the grandeur of the temple. It was probably hard not to be impressed. The temple they're looking at wasn't the one built by Solomon. That one had been destroyed at the time of the exile. It had been rebuilt after the exile. And recently, King Herod has been extending it and refurbishing it. Historians tell us it really was pretty grand. Herod had brought in huge marble stones. The gates and doors were covered with gold and silver. At least some of these disciples are only visiting Jerusalem with Jesus. And they are wowed by the temple. But when they draw Jesus' attention to it, he says a shocking thing. Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Why was that a shocking thing to say? Well, it's not so much because of the temple's grandeur that this is shocking. It's shocking because in the minds of the Jews, the end of the temple would coincide with the end of time. It was unimaginable to them that life would go on without the temple. That's why when Jesus climbs the Mount of Olives and sits down, the disciples are falling over themselves to get more information out of him. In verse 4, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? The disciples believe Jesus has just made a prediction of the end. Some Christians today have a tendency to be like these disciples. They have a fascination with signs of the end. There's always been quite a big market for speculation about the end. And here the disciples are mad for it too. They want to know. But what Jesus is going to do in this chapter 
is refuse to feed that hunger for speculation. Now, he will give the disciples details about the fall of the temple. But he is also going to separate the fall of the temple from the end of the world. In other words, even as he answers their questions about the end of the temple, so they can see it coming and be prepared for it, even as he does that, he warns them to be always prepared for the end of time. Because no one is going to see that coming. Only the Father knows when the end will come. What that means is that in this chapter, Jesus is dealing with two ends. And it's not always easy to decide when he's talking about the end of the temple and when he's talking about the end of time. As far as I can tell, almost every commentator on this agrees Jesus is talking about two different ends. But they disagree over when he's talking about which end. You could say they disagree about which end is up. Some parts of the chapter are clear. Others are less clear. Matthew and Luke also include this section of teaching from Jesus. You can read it in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And some of my decisions about this chapter have come from reading it alongside Matthew and Luke. I would encourage you to do that later for yourself. Matthew 24 and Luke 21. In any case, we've heard the disciples ask Jesus about the sign of the end. And he responds by telling them, don't be deceived by big claims and upheavals. Verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. If we could call this a sermon from Jesus, it's significant that his very first and his very last words are both, watch. And we'll see that in between, three times he encourages them to be on their guard, once to be alert, and once to keep watch. So the key message of this passage is, be awake, don't be dozy. And the first thing we're to be awake and watch out for is deception. History is full of imposters and deceivers. Later, Jesus will tell us how we'll know it's really him coming back. We will see him coming on the clouds. It will be unmissable. But he says, until that happens, don't give any credence to people who claim to be him. And when the next war kicks off, don't assume it's the war to end all wars. And when we see wars spiraling out of control at the moment, we're not to assume that's the war to end all wars. Why? 
Because history is full of wars and revolutions. It always has been. All of them are terrible. And some of them are more terrible than others. But we're not to go into a panic with each new war or each new evil dictator. Nor are we to panic over each new natural disaster. History is full of those kind of things too. Each new upheaval in history sends some people into a tizzy. They decide it must be the last upheaval. And certainly there will be one final upheaval. But we won't know it's the last one until it's over. And we're with Jesus. Speculating about the daily news is not what we're to be doing as Christians. And we're not to be sucked in by anyone else's speculation either. And at the same time, all these upheavals do tell us one thing. They remind us things are not as they should be in this world. They remind us of God's promise to create a new heaven and earth. In fact, Jesus calls these upheavals in verse 8, the beginning of birth pains. They remind us, every time we see them, that a new birth is coming. A new creation. Creation is groaning To give birth to God's new heaven and earth. But they don't tell us when that's coming. Jesus goes on. Don't be surprised by opposition. Verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. As Jesus is sitting here speaking these words, he knows that in a matter of days, he will be betrayed and handed over to the authorities and flogged. And here he forewarns the disciples, if you follow me, don't be surprised if similar things happen to you. And even as he warns them, he promises the Holy Spirit will be there to help. And notice in verse 9, the context of the Holy Spirit's help. This is not a promise that we can break the law and trust that God will get us off. No, he helps when we're facing opposition on account of our allegiance to Jesus. And in verse 9 and verse 10, look what God's people are to be doing while they face opposition. They're not to be retreating into bunkers. 
They're to be Christ's witnesses. They're to be sharing the good news about Jesus. Verse 9, we are to be witnesses to those we are called in front of. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Some people have taken the word first here to mean before the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, the gospel must be preached to all nations. I think it's more likely to mean before the end of all things, the gospel must be preached. Jesus is saying, right up until my return, you are to take the gospel to the world. And the normal context for doing that will be a context of persecution. Steve reminded us of that in his prayer earlier. What this means is you and I have lived our lives in an abnormal context so far. We haven't faced persecution in any real sense. But throughout history and in many places today, the church carries on its work in the midst of persecution. That is normal for them. When my dad first started visiting countries in communist Eastern Europe back in the 80s, the Christians he met there were very often denied the chance of a good education because of their allegiance to Jesus. Good careers were closed off to them because of their allegiance to Jesus. Many of them were regularly picked up by the police with no notice and beaten for following Jesus. Maybe you've wondered, what would we do as Christians if things go bad for us here in England? The answer, according to Jesus, is we will go on doing what we're supposed to be doing today. Obeying God's word and sharing the gospel in whatever way we're able. Persecution is not a reason to shut up and back off as God's people. Throughout history, it has been the normal context for serving God. And who knows, maybe in our lifetime we might see a return to that kind of normality. We may find ourselves suffering worse things than being called bigots. But if that happens, let's not be surprised. Let's not think that all is lost. God's Holy Spirit will give us what we need to serve God faithfully. Notice verse 12 speaks about being betrayed and then put to death. While verse 13 says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So if we lay those verses side by side, clearly verse 13 is not a promise we'll be saved always from physical death. If we stand firm for Jesus. Verse 13 is a promise of eternal life beyond physical death. One writer says, verse 13 gives assurance that those who suffer for Jesus will not be ultimately the losers. Don't be surprised by opposition. Whatever form it might take even in your life. Don't let it discourage you into giving up. 
Stand firm in your situation and serve God. Jesus has told the disciples upheaval and persecution are the normal context for Christians in this world. And now he gives them an example. He talks about a time of upheaval and persecution they personally will go through. He tells them about the end of the temple. Remember, this is what they initially asked him about. Jesus started by speaking to them in general terms. But I think that here, he gets specific. The transition from the general to the specific seems a little clearer in Luke's record of this. It's clear Luke 21 is giving us the same sermon as the one we're reading here. But Luke's notes contain some more details than Mark gives us here. At this point in Luke 21... Jesus mentions Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. But here too in Mark, Jesus makes it clear he's speaking to those who are in Judea. And historically, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. That's about 37 years after Jesus spoke these words. And as Jesus describes what's going to happen at that time, It's obvious it will be so bad, it will feel like the end of all things. But it won't be. Life will go on after that great upheaval. Jesus says to the disciples in verse 14, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. Well, as we read this, the first question to answer is, what on earth is the abomination that causes desolation? It's mentioned in verse 14. And it's a reference back to the book of Daniel. Without wanting to get bogged down here, the situation is this. Roughly 500 years before Christ, Daniel prophesied that in the future a ruler would come and attack Jerusalem. That ruler would set up an abomination that causes desolation in the temple. In other words, he would defile the temple in some way, some major way. He would desecrate the temple. History tells us that prophecy came about 500 years before Christ. And then exactly 167 years before Christ, 
a ruler called Antiochus came along. He attacked Jerusalem. He murdered the high priest, installed his own priest in the temple, built an altar to Zeus in the temple, and sacrificed pigs on it. In other words, Antiochus fulfilled the prophecy God gave through Daniel. So remember, that has already happened before Jesus speaks these words. And Jesus certainly knew about it. Every Israelite knew about it. It was an infamous day in their history. But here in verse 14, Jesus says, expect it to happen again. Not in exactly the same way, of course. But expect another ruler to come and desecrate the temple. So the prophecy in Daniel was actually explaining a pattern to us. Throughout history, rulers will rise up who try to destroy the worship of God. Antiochus had already done it a couple of hundred years before this. And a few decades after this, in AD 70, the Roman commander Titus would do it again. AD 70 and the years just before it, was a dreadful, dreadful time. Josephus was a Jewish historian from that time. He tells us around a million Jews died by crucifixion and famine and in other ways. Even if Josephus overestimated his numbers, clearly it was a terrible time. And Jesus tells these disciples ahead of time, you will have to go through it. And it will be dreadful. It will seem like it must be the end of all things. But it won't be. I think Jesus is saying this to illustrate what he's already told the disciples. Upheavals and opposition will happen throughout history. So when you go through a bad period, even one that seems unequaled in history, Don't assume it's the end. Don't be terrified into following false messiahs and false prophets who come along to deceive you. Don't lock yourself in a bunker with cans of beans. No, keep on serving God faithfully as you have opportunity. Keep on sharing the good news. That's your mission. And the mission doesn't end until Jesus comes back. And he will come back. Verses 24 to 31 tell us we can be sure about Christ's return. Several times Jesus has mentioned already false Christs, imposters and deceivers. So how will we know when he really has come back? We'll know when we see him coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Look at verse 24. But in those days following that distress, in other words, I've told you about that the destruction of the temple is not the end. What I'm talking about now will happen later. The sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. 
and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We know from the four Gospels that the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And here he's picking up on another prophecy from the book of Daniel. Steve mentioned it to us when he took us through an earlier passage in Mark. Daniel chapter 7 talks about one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the book of Revelation, as it quotes from Daniel, adds that when he comes, every eye will see him. So don't worry about missing him. You won't. And when he comes with his angels, he will gather his people to him. Jesus is talking here to people who knew all about farming and harvesting. They knew the appearance of leaves was an announcement of summer. And in the same way, Jesus says, my appearance and the gathering of my people is the announcement of my eternal kingdom. So then, in this context, verse 30 seems to mean not... None of you disciples here in front of me will die before I return. No, I think verse 30 means none of those who see me coming in the clouds will die before my eternal kingdom comes. I think Jesus' point is there will be no delay between my coming in the clouds and my eternal kingdom. There'll be no time for people to die in between. The generation that sees me arrive will not face a delay before the new heaven and earth comes. We can be sure about Christ's return. And we can be equally sure his return will bring an end to upheaval and distress for his people. So far, Jesus has said, have no doubt I'm coming back. But you won't know when I'm coming until I arrive. You can't figure it out from world events, like wars and catastrophes, or even periods of persecution. And now, putting those truths together, Jesus ends his sermon with a challenge. It's a challenge for these disciples sitting beside him and we'll learn it's a challenge for us. Be ready all the time. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard 
Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus, our master, has gone away. He is coming back. And in the meantime, he has given all of us assigned tasks. All of us have responsibilities. As sons and daughters, maybe. Parents, maybe. Husbands and wives, Friends and neighbors, employers and employees. We are to carry out those responsibilities faithfully. He has given all of us gifts. We're to use those gifts faithfully. When Jesus says keep watch, he doesn't mean we can never go to sleep. He doesn't mean we should be looking up at the sky all the time. He means we are to be ready all the time. Someone has said the Christian disciple is never off duty. We are not to take breaks from obedience or from pursuing holiness or from being faithful. We're not to be like athletes who neglect their training And hope everything will magically turn out all right when their big moment comes. No, every day we are to keep our big moment in mind. The day when our master returns. We are to keep that big moment and that day in mind as we eat and drink and work and play and chat and go out with our friends and watch TV And use the internet and spend our money. Don't try to live a life where you clock on and clock off as a Christian. Don't live like you clock on with God on Sunday morning and off again Monday morning. Live to honor and glorify Him every day. Then you'll be ready whatever day he comes. That is Jesus' call to his disciples. And we're going to respond to what we've heard as we sing together, rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King. And then we'll finish with, and he shall reign forever.